Okay. This is uh, Hebrews Lesson 16, Faith That Pleases God. And I'll be reading from Hebrews 10, 35 through chapter 11, verse 6. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We're about to get into the really fun part of Hebrews, I think. Uh, And it's all the stories in Hebrews 11 of our fathers and mothers in the faith who went before us and what their faith looked like. Um. There's a couple things I want to talk about. I want to talk about a foundational faith, what what the text has to say about faith itself. And I want to talk about a living faith. And then I want to talk about the first two examples of faith. Um, So the foundational faith that Hebrews is talking about here. I want to define faith. Um, He says that faith is the... Uh, assurance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. So basically, faith is believing in a reality of something that can't be seen. There are a lot of things that are real that we can't see. And an agnostic or an atheist sometimes will claim, oh, they don't believe in anything. You you can't live without believing in in something. Um, We don't understand everything, but sometimes we bump into things we don't understand, but we have to have some sort of functional faith in order to just navigate daily life. But we're talking today about a faith that pleases God, which is the goal. And it's a good question to ask ourselves, who are we trying to please? Who are we trying to please in this life? And as Christians, hopefully our answer, our true answer is that we want to please God. 2 Corinthians 5.7, Paul says, now um, we walk by faith, not by sight. So Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. 
So I'm reminded of how I uh, walk into my bedroom at night very often, or when I get up in the middle of the night. My husband is sleeping, and I don't want to wake him up, so I kind of tiptoe across the dark room. But I have in my mind, I understand that there are real things in the dark that I can't see, but I believe they're there, because I've bumped into them before. Um, So I know uh, when I'm getting up at night, what direction the bathroom is in, where the sink is, and as I'm coming back from there, I know that there is a laundry basket full of clean laundry that's been sitting there for several weeks. <laughs> and I know, too, when I get to that place, to kind of walk around it so I don't trip over it, because I've tripped over it before. Um, so people of the world scoff at Christians for believing in things that can't be seen. Our modern mindset has become very materialistic in many ways. So um, the world scoffs when we say we believe in a God that we can't see and we believe in heaven, well, right. But um, they say that things that can't be perceived with our five senses senses simply don't exist and that you're foolish if, they, if you believe that they do. But they're not entirely consistent in that belief because they believe in plenty of things that, don't ex- that um, aren't evidence. Um, we all have assumptions of faith. And it's not foolish to believe in things that you can't see. Most of the things that make our life worth living are things that we can't see. Um, but I know there's a laundry basket there. <laughs> I've run into it before. And so faith informs us of things that we can't see and um, helps us in our journey. Hebrews spells out two fundamental propositions of faith that are necessary to draw near to God. So these two basic fundamental assertions, these two things that we have to believe, all our other faith is based on these two things. And the first one is, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. He exists. And implicit in that assertion is that God is the creator. He he is responsible for all that is. He made it. He designed it. He has ownership over it. He has a right to command. Um, There is a God. He's real. Um, And we are accountable to him. So... By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Your typical uh, godless evolutionist will say, nah, you know, what's here, what you see is what is. This talk about God, you know, can't see it, can't verify it. Um, And yet there's plenty of evidence. When you look at the physical things that exist, someone designed that. They didn't just happen. And the scripture says that deep down, humanity has a knowledge that there is a God, that God created things. We suppress that knowledge because we don't want to deal with the implications of it. But in order to please God, we have to believe that he exists. And secondly, um, that he rewards those who seek him. God rewards. And so... The author of Hebrews says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For by it, that is faith, the people of old received their commendation. 
two things that this points out to me. First is, it is possible to please God. Now, there are some people in your life that it's just impossible to please, right? <laughs> you, you can't do anything right. Um, some of you have stu- uh, suffered from trying to please a parent that can't be pleased or a coach or a teacher. Um, you really wanted to and you couldn't. And at a certain point, you just quit trying because it's impossible. And we're assured by our text here that it is not impossible to please God. It is possible to please him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. Matthew 7, 7 and 8, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And we've talked before about how that means. You don't just, you know, kind of knock hesitantly once. You keep pounding. It's there. You believe it's there. You know it's there. So you keep knocking and you will be rewarded. Um, You keep seeking. You you know that God is there and you want to find him. And it, it takes effort. It takes a search. But it will be rewarded. It is worth finding him. Um, And if you need something, you know he can give it. You know he can provide the reward. And so you keep asking for it. You keep after it. So it is possible to please God. He will reward those who seek him. And he is worth pleasing. Psalm 63, I'm quoting verse 1 and verse 3. David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. God is worth pleasing. His reward is worth having. It's worth all the trouble and the pain and the effort to get. So... Something, again, that's very important that we ask ourselves is, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing this? Is it worth the effort? Who am I trying to please? Is the one that we're trying to please worth pleasing? Think about social media. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are aware there's a note being taken of a recent epidemic of depressed, suicidal teenage girls um, because they get on social media and they, you know, they even have official category of influencers on social media. So, so people that want to sell you something or convince you of something will pay a cute teenage girl to get on there and, and market this to you, an idea, a product, whatever, and so people post, you know, all the pretty pictures of themselves dressed really nicely and doing fun things. And so you get on social media and you look at that and you think, oh, that's what life is supposed to be. Oh, yeah, if I want people to like me, that's how I need to dress. That's how I need to act. That's what I need to do. Here's the fashionable thing. And we end up depressed <laughs> and suicidal because those are not really people worth pleasing. Those aren't really your friends. We have these imaginary friends and these false expectations and these um, things we're trying to do. And so girls will starve themselves to be skinny, be anorexic, or um, scar themselves or hurt themselves. Or, you know, teenagers will drink Tide on some bet, you know, do stupid things because they want to be liked 
And you have to step back and say, why do you want these people to like you? Are they worth pleasing? No, they're not. But God is worth pleasing. He can be pleased. And he's worth the effort. So that's um, the, the fundamental faith that we need to have, that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I want to say a bit here, though, about saving faith, because as Protestants, we've heard this a lot. You know, my righteous one shall live by faith. And we're all very familiar with Martin Luther's aha moment back before uh, at the start of the Reformation when he reads this verse and finally the lights go on and he suddenly understands the gospel and he understands the teaching of Paul. He's like, wait a minute, it's about faith. It's, it's not my works that have to earn my salvation. It's, it's faith that makes me acceptable to God. So a few basic points here. It is not our good works that save us, but Christ's work that saves us. And we recognize that by faith. It's our faith in Christ's work that pleases God. Um, so Paul says to the Romans, Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The law can't save anyone. All it can do is convince us of our sin and show us our sin. Isaiah 64.6, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So think back to the Garden of Eden, the first sin. Adam and Eve realize they're, they're naked and they're ashamed and they run out and sew together fig leaves and hide in the bushes and it's just, you know, it, it doesn't work. God has to provide the covering for them. So our righteous acts can't cover us. Jesus' righteousness covers us and that's what's given to us. And that's what makes us acceptable and presentable. Secondly, our good works are the result not the cause of our salvation. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works so that we can do good works. Faith motivates our good works. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So our good works are results of the salvation that Christ has earned for us. Thirdly, the righteous life is a life of faith. The righteous person lives by faith in Christ. So this can mean a number of different things. And the Protestant Reformation has focused very much on faith is what saves you. It's not your works. Um, We're given the righteousness of Christ. But then there's this other aspect of faith, that we grow and begin to walk in that righteousness. By faith, we're born again. And by faith, we grow up and walk and live it out. So, um, faith does not, faith that does not produce good works is not saving faith. So, you get James that says, 
you know what? Faith isn't just this little belief you have in your head. It's not just some feeling you have in your heart. It's not just intellectual assent. Um, even the demons believe there's a God. They believe it. They, you know, to some degree have some, you know, foundational theology. They're not denying that he exists. They believe in God. That's not saving faith. Um, it, they don't submit. They don't obey. They don't um, do what he says. They don't willingly acknowledge him as Lord and want to do his will. Our faith, our saving faith, entails those things. So God is the one who saves. It is not our good works that save us. It is the work of Christ that saves us. It's his good works that save us, that cover us. God has provided the sacrifice for our sins. We talked a few weeks ago, going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac, walking up the mountain. Isaac says, "Uh, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. And he did, and he has, and he must, because we can't. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't be good enough to make up for our sin. It's Jesus' righteousness, not ours, that redeems us. It's faith in Christ that makes us acceptable to God. It's Christ's faithfulness to God that saves us. And this, is, this was just kind of a, a breakthrough, oh, moment for Martin Luther, because he used to hate God. He was a very scrupulous, spiritual person, valued salvation, wanted desperately to please God, and he kept being so conscious of his own sin. He would do everything he's supposed to be as a conscientious monk. Every time he sinned, he'd want to go confess, and his confessors were just sick of seeing him because he would confess at length every bad thought he ever had. And every, You can just imagine his confessors at one point going, Stop! Go get a real sin, will you? <laughs> um, but Martin Luther said, you know, he hated God. He was so afraid of God because God is holy and just and he demands his perfection and he can't do it and it's not fair. And when Martin Luther got the gospel that it's by faith in what Christ has done, he realized, you know, God is not this horrible tyrant that I've imagined that's impossible to please. In fact, God is the most loving, gracious friend a sinner could ever have. Think of that hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. See, God knows that we can't redeem ourselves. And so he gives us the righteousness that saves us and restores us to him. It's by faith, by this faith, that we live. Now, Martin Luther, um, you know, we all say what we say and think what we think based on (laughs) um, our own experience and what we're dealing with. And Martin Luther was had had works drilled into him to such a degree that when James talks about the necessity of works in the Christian life, Luther reacted so strongly against that he didn't even want James in the Bible. But God in his wisdom included the teaching of James in the Bible. And we need the balance of scripture. We're always trying to reduce it to some little niche thing. And there's a balance and there's a fullness. Um, James, of course, famously says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. He said, well, how does that work out? 
Show me your faith apart from your works. How do you do that? I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that. Good job. You know, that's not saving faith. They shudder. Faith apart from works is useless, he says. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So actually, when you study the whole of Scripture, the whole Council of Scripture, you find out that James and Paul actually do agree. They're emphasizing different aspects of our salvation here. Um, Paul says, and this totally agrees with what James is saying, Titus 1.16, he's talking about people who um, are not saved. They're not living the faith. They might claim it. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So their mouth is saying one thing, but what they really believe is being shown in their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Because we're saved to do good works. And when Christ's spirit lives in us, that righteousness is planted in us. And we begin to want to do those things and to do them and to grow up in them. And we walk by that faith that has saved us. It's not our works to save us. But we are saved to do these works. It becomes part of our nature. Faith that does not produce good works is not real living faith. So we need to see here that salvation is bigger than one moment in time that secures our eternal destiny. Thank you. Go into heaven. Don't have to worry about hell. I'm done. That's my faith. No. That's just the very beginning of faith. Our salvation, when we are saved, it is a reality that permeates and transforms every aspect of our lives. It is lived out in this life and into eternity. Eternal life starts now. So, our works don't save us, but good works are a sign of our salvation and are essential to who we are. They're what our salvation does. They're what our faith produces. The second um, point here is that faith that pleases God is a living faith. It has to be lived out. It is real, active, observable. Again, it's not just some little theory in the six inches inside our skulls that doesn't affect anything in the world. We live by faith. And so Hebrews says, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." All right, that's a big chunk there, and I want to point out three main things. Faith involves confidence, endurance, and action. So first of all, confidence. Living faith has confidence. That means confidence is that we're sure of something, we're certain, we're solidly convinced that what we believe is true and can be relied on. And so... Because we believe that, um, we, we rely on it. We base everything on it. 
we act in accordance with that belief. But it comes from being confident. And again, faith, the picture of faith in the Bible is not what our culture often presents as faith, that it's like this blind leap in the dark. You psych yourself up to believe something that's crazy, and if you believe hard enough, it'll come true. No, no. This confidence that we have in our faith is based on evidence. Now, we don't understand everything about God. There, there is mystery, and there are things that disturb us that we don't understand. Um, there are things that we don't like. But at some point, we have enough evidence to believe God, to know he exists, to believe that he rewards that that's what we should be seeking is his reward, and we know enough, given what we know from the scripture, to please him. So, so here the author says, don't throw away your confidence, it has great reward. So I think about, you know, in this uh, time in our society right now, it's a lot of political instability up and down, all around the world. We're seeing all kinds of crazy things. And what do people suddenly start investing in when everything goes crazy in the economy? Gold. Everybody's talking about buying gold because gold doesn't lose its value. So we have confidence in gold. Your paper money might mean nothing. They just keep printing it and printing it and printing it, and pretty soon nobody's going to want it. But gold is something you can hold in your hand. It's hard to get, and it will be worth something is, is the thought process. We have confidence in that, and it affects what we invest in, right? Um, and then I think of um, the other side of <laughs> my father-in-law telling the story about he was a kid he collected comic books and um, you know first edition kept them and of course as kids do they store all their junk in their parents' house and then they move out and the junk stays there <laughs> and um, and his mother got tired of the junk and you know just gave away all his comic books. And then he would, you know, regularly say, they would be worth blah, 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 you know, a million dollars now, you know. But she didn't recognize the value. She didn't have confidence in their value. And so she threw it away. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't throw away your confidence. These things that you have professed when you were baptized, when you joined the church and you said, I believe this, the basic tenets of Christianity, the promise of God, the scripture, don't throw that away. And as humans, you know... I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm always trying out new beauty products or health cures or whatever, you know, maybe, maybe this will work, you know. And then you get partway into it and you're like, ah, not happened soon enough, it's too much effort, whatever, and you quit. Um, and Paul's saying, don't do that. This works. This is real. This is value that will not depreciate. Hold on to this. And when you remind ourselves, remind each other of the value of this, because we're humans, and we get bored, and we get tired, and we get discouraged, and we you know, stop doing what we're doing. And you say, don't stop. Keep going. It's worth it. The Christian life is lived out because we have faith. Um, and... The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people. Again, this is the first century of Christianity. Um, Christianity started in Judaism. The first followers of Christ are Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Um, and Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. And so um, the first believers were Jewish. And they, um, but, but at this point, you have a group of Jews that have gone on ahead into receiving Christ as their Messiah and understanding the gospel and the fulfillment of all that. And then you have another group of Jews who are like, nope, we like this. 
We like the types and the shadows and the formulas and the pictures. Um, we're not concerned about what they were pointing to. We, we want this. And the writer of Hebrews has said repeatedly, there's no life there. That was pointing to something. If you don't go on to what it points to, you've missed the point. That's worthless now. It won't serve you. And it doesn't please God in and of itself. So he's saying, you, you Christians now, you hold on to this faith. Um, you can have confidence in this faith. And they had confidence. What they have confidence in? Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We talked about that last week, I think, in chapter 10, 23. Um, hold that confession of faith that you professed. It, we have confidence in it because we have confidence in the authority of Scripture. These people believed the Old Testament. They believed the prophets. And then they had confidence in the message of the gospel. So when Jesus came and fulfilled it and his apostles went out and preached it, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Scripture said this. Wow, Jesus fulfilled it. I believe it because God said it. God doesn't lie. And Jesus... Look at his miracles. Look, you know, he rose from the dead. That means that God, that what he said was true. God has accepted what he's done on our behalf. And they were absolutely convinced of the certainty of Christ's promise. Jesus is who he claims to be. Um, He has the power and authority to bring to fulfillment all the promises of God. He's the fulfillment of that. And and so the first Christians, and, and hopefully us as well, um, we have confidence in the truth of Christianity. The truth. You know, there is a truth. We've talked about that at length before. It's not my truth and your truth and, you know, whatever you want it to be. It's there is objective truth. Something happened. God did something in history. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And that's not something we just psych ourselves into. It's some irrational, crazy thing that, like, oh, I think I want to believe in the tooth fairy, so I'm going to believe really hard in the tooth fairy, and you know, maybe some money will show up under my pillow. No, there's evidence. There's historical documentation. There are eyewitnesses. It, it doesn't sound like something, I mean, not something we see happening all the time, but how do we know anything happened in history? Right? It's based on testimony that's been recorded for us. And there is adequate testimony, multiple sources, documentation, evidence that this happened. And that changes everything. And we can have confidence in that. And then specifically, um, the author is pointing to confidence in the return of Christ. Now, here's where things get a little um, complicated. Uh, he, He takes several prophecies from the Old Testament and crunches them down together and makes them all one one saying here. So he's quoting from Isaiah 26, 20 and from Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4 when he says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. So he's taking these Old Testament prophecies that actually applied to something at the time And he's saying it means even more than that. So in Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4, um, Habakkuk has been complaining to God about, you know, that God's going to bring, you know, an evil nation to punish Israel, who isn't nearly as bad as that evil nation. And, And God tells Habakkuk, oh, it's coming. God will judge them, and, and he will deliver his people. And he says, 
For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. Well, it was actually 100 years or more until it happens, but it's, it's going to that end. It will happen. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. You know that saying that they always say in jokes? Wait for it. <laughs> it's coming. You don't understand it yet. Wait for it. It's coming. Uh, wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not delay. So in the time that elapses between the promise of God given to us and the time of fulfillment, it's not delay. It's working towards that. It's, it's the process of achieving that. So it's not like God's sitting there, you know, oh, you know, nothing's scheduled for the next, you know, 300 years, so I guess I'll just prop up my feet and I'll set my alarm so that, you know, when the time comes, I'll jump up and I'll do something. No, his, he has a plan and he's working it out through history and he's not delaying and he's not dragging his feet and he's not being surprised by anything and he's not being confused and he's not being discouraged and he's not giving up. It's working. And he's telling us, this is what's happening, it's coming. That in, in this specific case, it's your enemies will be judged. I will come and rescue you. Um, wait for it. And then Isaiah 26, 20 and 21, he says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while. Until the fury has passed by, for behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So here he's speaking to true believers in, in the nation at that time and saying, things are about to get dicey. They're going to get rough. Judgment is coming. Now you just wait it out. You, you go hide and wait for the fury to pass because it will pass. Um, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So, so here in this quote in Hebrews, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. And so he's taking those Old Testament prophecies that were speaking of a, a situation in that time and he's saying, guess what? They apply to much more than that. And he's applying it here to the return of Christ. Yeah, um, you don't see the full result of your faith yet, but your faith is well-placed. This is what's coming. Hold on to it. Believe it. Jesus is coming back. He didn't just do this thing and leave, and now it's up to you. He's coming back, and that should give us incredible confidence. Um, we, as Christians, live now in light of the future. We base what we do now knowing what is promised to us in the future. So our confidence in the Christian faith is anchored in an eternal perspective of history. We know God's faithfulness in the past, and we know his promise for the future, and that's how we navigate life. Now, all hell has broken loose in our culture, it seems, or is breaking loose. And it seems like our media, our news, our social media, our everybody is trying to convince us that um, there is no eternity. It's here and now, and it doesn't matter what happened before. And, you know, you don't know where you're going. You're just here. And they're spinning everybody, you know. Oh, this nation wasn't founded on you know, on godly principles, you know, our founding fathers were not Christians, you know, blah, 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 you know, they were horrible, evil people that, you know, whatever. Um, they, they want to remove us from history. 
part of the renaming everything, you know, whether you like the person or not that a military base was named after, um, it's history. This person existed and they did a certain thing. And so part of getting rid of them isn't because you care really about what they did. I really believe the agenda behind it is to remove us from history. So we have no mooring. We don't know where we came from. We don't know what went before us. So we don't know how to act. We don't know where we came from, and then we don't know where we're going. And because we can't remember anything before, we're kind of left to believe everything they tell us. And then we don't have any options for even knowing that things could be different. We don't have a memory of anyone who acted a certain way in this situation and achieved a different result. So um, the evil that seeks to enslave the world tries desperately to cut us off from knowledge of our history to disable our perspective so that we're unable to understand what's going on and so that we have no hope for the future. And if we don't know where we came from and we don't know who we are or where we're going, the enemy can come in and say, this is who you are. They can make us into who they want and make us do what they want us to do. And this is true. I'm using um, the uh, political situation as an example of a greater truth. Um, It's true spiritually, it's true psychologically, it's true sociologically, politically, it's true in every way. Look through the history of the Old Testament. Look at the judges. You know, start out good, you got a generation that knows God, and within a generation or two, they forget. They forget God. They forget their history. They don't remember who they are or where they came from or what God has done, and they end up worshiping idols and in distress. And revival usually comes when somebody... (laughs) discovers the law, discovers the scroll, discovers the record, remembers what God has done in the past and goes, oh boy, are we off course. And so we need to know our Bible. We need to know our history. Now, as as Protestants, generally, we, we know our Bible history pretty well, but we're not really good at church history until maybe the Reformation. We know a little bit about that, and then poof, it's gone. But... What Hebrews is showing us here is there is living faith that goes on and on. It doesn't stop and start. It's carried on by God's people through all the generations. It's real, and that's the faith passed on to us. Um, So our confidence in the truth of what we believe, and we have good reason to believe it, um, produces endurance in times of trouble then and pressure and testing. Um, endurance is fortitude, strength and patience to stand firm, not lose ground, not give up ground, and to persevere through adversity. And scripture is very clear that we will experience tribulation in this world. Our modern, western, squishy, diluted, heretical views of the Christian life that say, uh, that, that preach health and wealth and things are going to be great if you come to the Lord, are not biblical. Um, Jesus never soft-pedaled tribulation or the cost. He warned up front um, what to expect if you follow him um, so that we won't be thrown off and discouraged and quit. You count the cost up front. He said, the world hates me and it will hate you if you follow me. Following me means taking up your cross, dying to yourself. You will lose relationships. You will cause disharmony 
in your family. You will lose family. Your children might disown you. Your husband might divorce you. Your parents might try to kill you. Um, You will lose money. You will lose possessions. You will lose job opportunities. You will lose property. You will lose your freedom. You'll be stuck in prison. You'll lose your social standing. People will despise you and hate you and think you're stupid and slander you. And even it may cost you your life, physically, martyrdom. Be ready for that. That's, that's what you're signing up for if you follow Jesus. And then he says, John 16, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we're told what to expect and to count the cost up front so that we can endure it. It's like, okay, you know, if I tell you to go into my dark bedroom at night and get something for me, <laughs> there's no electricity, or send my husband up to get something because the electricity's out, and watch out for the laundry basket on the left. <laughs> and, you know, and it's right, once you feel the bed, then you go ahead and there it is, and um, that's what our faith informs us of. And if we're prepared for the difficulties, if we're prepared for the onslaught, the attacks, then we can stand against them. If you lure somebody into the Christian faith and tell them as soon as they're Christians, oh, their life is going to work great, and they're going to be healthy, and people are going to love them, and their family's going to be peaceful, and there won't be any problems, and you know, God's going to fix their finances, and all this, you know, then when Satan really attacks them, as, as usually happens, as soon as you really come to the Lord, all of a sudden you've got a big target on you now, and all hell breaks loose. They're like, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. I have no power to endure it because I wasn't expecting it. I didn't count that in. And so... Scripture warns us. Jesus warns us. Um, The apostles warn us. In fact, uh, Paul says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is what's coming. Brace yourself. Be ready for it. Um, And it doesn't mean you're on the wrong track. It means you're on the right track when this happens. Um, So, Expect tribulation, but we're offered the reassurance that the duration of the trial is limited. Yet a little while. Well, that little while, to us, we wouldn't call it a little while from the beginning of that prophecy to its fulfillment. Even in its day, you know, it took, you know, well over 100 years to happen. But we need to know, and Scripture assures us, that this won't last forever. This pain we're in, this struggle we're in, this challenge... It won't last forever. Think about when you're a kid and you're sitting in school waiting for the bell to ring. <laughs> it's like I mean, you're watching the clock because you know if I can just make it five more minutes, I'll be free. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I remember thinking when I went into labor with my child, you know, th- this can't last forever. I mean, there has to come an end point, right? You know, either I die or I give birth. The pain will not. This isn't going to be for eternity. Um, and we need to know that in the Christian walk. Despair is what happens when a person loses all hope for the future and thinks that the pain will never end. Once you lose hope and you think this is it, this is the way it is forever, you might as well give up because, you know, it's just, that's, that's despair, But we're assured that the reward will be worth the trouble because that's another way to despair. There are people who believe that 
you know, yeah, things might get better at some point in the future, but they can never, no matter how good it gets, it can never really make up for what I'm suffering now, the evil in my, that, that I've suffered, the wounding I've suffered. Um, scripture assures us that the trial is temporary, it is limited, that pain and darkness are not the end of the story. And that the value of the reward promised to us when we make it through is glorious and eternal and will certainly outweigh any suffering we experience now. 2 Corinthians 4 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing. And the things that are unseen are eternal. They're more real than what you see now. They will last longer. And they're better. So we're assured that not to lose heart because the suffering won't last forever, and on the other side of it, it's, I think of the line in one of the hymns, you know, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Heaven applying very generally to, to, to what's coming. Um, there will be a new heaven and new earth. We will not always feel this pain in our soul, this dysfunction. We will not always be struggling with our sin. It's going to be good. It is worth the effort. So persevere on through. You need endurance. And you can endure with these things confidently in mind. Jesus is coming back. This is going to happen. And you will get through this. And so confident faith motivates and produces action in life. Our faith is observable. It is evidenced by our works, by what we do and don't do. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So faith involves doing something. Faith is not merely intellectual assent. It has to be lived out. True faith compels action. Faith is observable. It's demonstrated. It's proved by what we do. So Faith has implications for every aspect of our life. Again, it's not just this isolated little incident where you say the magic prayer and poof, you're good to go. Um, Faith, receiving that salvation, has implications for everything in our life, and our faith is to guide all of that. Faith determines our loyalties and our priorities. What we choose to spend our time and our money on and And in a particular situation, who we're going to go with, that's determined by our faith. If our faith is real and living and has taken root in our heart, it determines our loyalties and our priorities. And faith guides our decisions and our course of action. It it tells us where we're going, and it tells us step by step in this situation, this is how you work it out. So what Hebrews is about to do here now in Hebrews 11 is show us what faith looks like in a whole bunch of different situations in our life. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. And it doesn't always turn out with the same result in this life that you might think. 
There's a lot of variety. But our faith is evident in our life, in everything we do. And I want us to ask ourselves this week, if I really believe that God exists and that what he says is true and that he is able to reward me, what would I do in this situation? If I really believe this, how does that mean I act in this situation? What do I do? And the scripture informs us, gives us so many examples of, you know what? There was a saint who lived before who had this exact same situation or something very similar. And guess what? This is what he or she did. And this is how it turned out for them. Oh, you know, and there's another one in the situation that turned out differently. But here's what faith looked like in that situation. And so we do it. Um, Faith has to be lived out. If we are not living based on our faith, then it's not living faith. It's fake faith. It's demonic faith. And then I just want to highlight real quickly the first two examples of faith that are provided now in our text. And we'll you know, spend a number of weeks camped out in chapter 11 of Hebrews looking at, at different groups of saints who have gone before and what their faith looked like. But the first two are important to emphasize that it is faith that pleases God. Um, so the first is Abel's offering. Cain and Abel, right after Adam and Eve, um, already the human family is dysfunctional, and we have sibling rivalry. And um, we're told, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, um, there's... There's a lot of discussion about, you know, what, what made Abel's offering acceptable versus Cain's. And a lot of people say it's, it's because Abel brought a lamb to sacrifice for sin. Cain brought vegetables, which were nice. That was his hobby, but, you know, it wasn't what God wanted. And, and maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something there. But from this passage in Hebrews, it seems to me that the main thing that made um, Abel's offering acceptable was Abel's faith. His faith made it acceptable. And faith, of course, isn't just a belief. It's a relationship with God. And so Abel's heart was right and righteous before God. And so his offering was accepted. Cain's evidently was not. Now, we don't know what that acceptance looked like. If, if they each had a little altar and one put a lamb and one put vegetables and fire came down on the lamb and not the vegetables. We don't know. We're not told what that looked like. But it was evidence that Abel had secured that God was pleased with what Abel did, and he wasn't pleased with Cain's offering. And then we're told Abel's faith still speaks to us, even though he's dead. His faith is a witness to us. It's passed on to us. So stories of the saints who've gone before us are a great help to us. They are recorded for us to equip us. They teach us, and they inspire us. And the main thing that Abel's faith is being used to emphasize here is that faith is necessary to please God. A formula, some kind of religious formula, without faith will fail to please God. Abel's offering was pleasing because Abel's faith was pleasing to God. His attitude, his purpose, his relationship with God. Offerings in and of themselves do not please God if your heart 
is not right before God. If this is some kind of game to you, or you're checking a block, or you think this is a formula, you can't fool God. God sees the heart. God has always been after the heart. And through the prophets, you know, at times he just rails against these people being so religious and having no heart for him, not knowing him, not caring to know him, just doing their duty. And they think they can sin all they want and just bring a nice fat lamb and everything's good. And he said, I hate your offerings. You're trampling my courts. Your, your holidays that you celebrate that you think are so cool and so spiritual and so religious, I hate them. They weary me because your heart's not there. You honor me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. And so faith... It's necessary to please God. It's not good enough to just go to church and do the rituals and have the formulas. And those things, you know, they can be a good thing if they're done in faith and they're offered from a sincere heart out of love for the Lord. But if there's some kind of game you're playing because you think you can manipulate God by this, they are offensive to God. Um, Another thing that Abel's faith teaches us, and there are numerous things that we can go on at length, but one thing that stands out that will be picked up on later in Hebrews is that the unrighteous will persecute the righteous. So if you're pleasing to God, that does not mean you're going to be pleasing to everyone else. In fact, if you're pleasing God, you will incur the wrath of some people, the jealousy, the persecution. You will be persecuted for it. So 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised but the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is, this is how faith works. This is what everybody experiences. If you're godly, if you want God's favor and that's what you're working for, you will not have the favor of the world. You will be persecuted. So that's Abel's offering. Faith pleases God. And it doesn't necessarily look in this life, depending on what you're looking for, that, that that's, um, wow, some kind of little formula for making this life work well. It got Abel killed, and it's gotten a lot of Christians killed. Um, so the second one is Enoch's rapture, I've called it, um, just from our modern uh, pop understanding of rapture, being taken out of this world without dying. Um, so Genesis 5, 21 to 24 tells us what we need to know about Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then Hebrews explains this, using Enoch as an example for us, and says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So only Enoch and Elijah are mentioned in the Old Testament as being translated directly to heaven without dying in their body. Um, I'm not saying it didn't happen to anybody else, but we're not told that it happened to anybody else. But Enoch is being held up here as, as an example of somebody God was pleased with. And he went... He didn't even have to face death. He went directly to heaven. Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. What does it mean to walk with someone? Um, When you walk with someone, you have fellowship. Right? John says when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with Christ and with his followers. 
When we walk in the light as he is in the light. Um, so walking with somebody implies a fellowship, a friendship, a like-mindedness. It implies a life of regular, consistent, prioritized time spent with this individual, investing in relationship. Some of us have walking buddies that we get together with regularly, and they become a very significant part of our life. Um, Enoch walked with God. He made that relationship the priority of his life, and God rewarded him. Um, He didn't experience death. God was worth everything to him, and God rewarded him. Now, Abel's reward (laughs) is a little different from, from Enoch's reward, right? But both of their faith pleased God. And what Abel says is um, a a little different nuance of the faith here. The story's not over. His, His reward was on the other side of death and is yet to come in the new heaven and new earth. Enoch's reward testifies that there is more than here. Yes. Um... Not everybody that pleases God is going to not have to die. Most of us will. (laughs) But God's real, and he's worth it, and he does reward. So, if I really believe that God exists, that what he says is true, and that he's able to reward me, what do I do in my life, in whatever situation is facing me? What does faith look like in this situation? Our faith looks beyond the here and now. It looks beyond the suffering that we're experiencing here. And that gives us the endurance to endure the suffering, to get to the other side and to claim the reward. The saints who have gone before us that are recorded in the Bible, that are recorded in church history, that we know of in our family history and among our friends, those testimonies show us a full-bodied picture of faith. They show us what faith looks like in all kinds of different situations, in all kinds of different lives. And it's not one-size-fits-all. And it's not an easy formula. It is a relationship that is lived out with God in the flesh, in this life. And it's worth everything. Um, So you have somebody like Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. We we don't look at the saints and those who have gone before and just follow them because they're really cool. Although they are really cool and God did really cool things through them and they should inspire us and they should show us the options of when this kind of thing happens, what's a Christian supposed to do? Well, this one did this, this one did this. Okay, so this is in the range. We we know some things we could do in this situation that are Christian. Um, So... But, but the saints are following Christ, and ultimately that's who we're following. They point us to Jesus, and they, their witness remains after their death. Whether their life looked triumphant and wonderful and had miracles, or whether they ended up dying for their faith and living miserable lives by a human standard, their faith says to us, God is real, and he rewards, and he is worth everything. So... So we can say to one another, follow me as I follow Christ. Look, look, this is what I see. This is what I know. This is what the saints before have said. They've kind of mapped out, oh, I bumped into that. So partway into your faith, you might experience this. This is what you do about it. You know, take a step this way. 
So it's follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, watch out for the laundry basket on the left. Right? <laughs> you can't see it. Um, there's stuff there. We, we learn from our history. We know who we are and we know how to act on account of that. I love that, pointing out the humanity of Christ and ultimately what Hebrews is pointing us to is Christ and Christ is the one we follow. He was the perfect example of what a man should be, a human being should be, a righteous person. And so we follow him, but we find um, great encouragement and teaching and inspiration in the lives of the saints who have gone before. And what did following Christ look like in their lives? Um, I love this, you know, did... uh, did the little girls giggle when you walked past? Did you wonder what it was that made them laugh? You know, just the humanity of Christ. And you know, even in that situation, there is a way to be a Christian, to experience attraction, to do romance, to live righteously before God with all the feelings that we have. There's a way to have fun. There's um, a way to deal with fear. All these things that we experience, Jesus experienced. And the saints before us have experienced and can provide some great wisdom for us. So I really look forward in the next few weeks to talking about specific saints and what their faith looked like to inspire our faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have created us in Christ Jesus to do good works that you prepared in advance for us. Thank you that you have written us into your story. We are part of it. Um, And you have specific works for us to do. Thank you for saving us to do these things. Thank you for assuring us that we, we can't earn it. You have earned it. You have given it to us. By faith, we receive salvation. And then we grow up into it. And we follow Jesus. Lord, we... We want to be good characters in your story. And we want to delight in all the other characters who are doing things. We want to learn from them. We want to stand strong and walk straight because we know who we are. We know where we came from. We know where we're going. And we know that you are with us and you are worth everything. In Jesus' name, amen.